0: morning. This morning's scripture is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. For as you know, it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and hope are in God Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you love so that sorry so that you have sincere love for your brothers love one another deeply from the heart for you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God
1: Amen. Thanks, Bob. Well, we are in a season right now where we as a church are consciously and explicitly focusing ourselves on Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there should never be a season where we're not doing that. But we have found that we desperately needed uh, this recalibration as a church, and maybe in your own life you need that same recalibration. And as we fix our attention on Jesus, we find that everything else assumes its true shape. It's when we're not consciously fixed on Jesus that crises loom larger and feel more threatening, that relationships begin to drift, and that religion feels shallow. And ministry loses its vitality. How can you tell when a church is intentionally focused upon Jesus? Well, there is concerted energy directed toward reaching the lost and serving the poor. There are people reading and loving the Bible, reading it not because we have to, but because we get to, as we heard at camp last weekend. When a church is intentionally fixed upon Jesus, there is a culture of grace and innovation and affirmation and initiative and joy rather than fear. And of course, people talk about Jesus. That's how you can tell if a church's attention is focused on Jesus. And when Jesus himself says things like, Come to me and I will give you rest, or I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Or, whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Or, this is the work of God, to believe in the one he has sent. When Jesus says things like this, this is also true of us as a church, not just true of us individually. That a church is not frantic with burdensome busyness, but a church that has rest. A church that lives more abundantly, that bears fruit, that does the simple work of believing in the one whom God has sent. And that's what we want to be, isn't it? had a conversation with someone in pastoral ministry some weeks back and This person said that he had a hard time affirming explicitly that Jesus is central. He just had a hard time even being able to say that. Central even to the Christian faith and experience. And yet consider what the apostles, inspired by God, proclaimed. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Paul in Galatians said, I no longer even live, but Christ lives in me. Peter wrote that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John the Apostle said, look, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. This is not accidental language. This is not just one person in the New Testament saying these things. The life and the faith of the apostles in the early church was very much fixed upon the person of Jesus Christ let me go on with this we just came through a sermon series on the book of Ephesians through the summer and early fall and in that book alone God reveals that we have been blessed in Christ, chosen in Christ, predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ, blessed with God's grace in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins through Christ, that we've been made alive in Christ and raised with Christ and seated with Christ in heaven, created in Christ for good works, reconciled to God in Christ, united with each other in Christ, and even that God's eternal purpose has been realized in Christ. And that's just Ephesians. God's word says that we are the body of Christ, that we've been given the mind of Christ. I mean, even the the most cursory reading of the New Testament makes it unmistakable that God has made Jesus the center and object of all of God's activity towards mankind, all through history. And that those of us who were in Camp Caroline last weekend, we were reminded of this, that it really is all about Jesus. And Jesus is even the center and object of all of our activity toward God. And it's only to the extent that we ourselves are all about Jesus that we will know him and be his church in the world. So we're doing right, I think, to focus on Jesus in these days. And so to that end, we're in a sermon series right now that I've titled Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T, and we've considered Christ as C, creator, a few weeks back. Colossians chapter 1 says of Jesus, all things were created by him and for him. So we belong to Jesus, and we can trust him since all things are in his hand. Uh, Last week, those who were here considered Christ as H, hero, the one who fought for us and rescued us. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus, the Son of God, became fully human, that, quote, through death, he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's the work of a hero coming to our rescue. Well, today we're coming to the letter R, the third letter in Christ, and consider Jesus our Redeemer, which we've just sung. Our Redeemer, of course, is one of those very familiar Christian words, part of our vocabulary. We sing songs like, There is a Redeemer, I will sing of my Redeemer. Many of my Christian friends, after high school in Ontario, went on to Redeemer College. And so we ask, well, what does it mean that Jesus is our Redeemer? And we answer, well, it means he died on the cross for our sins. Well, no, it doesn't. Dying on the cross is how he redeemed us. But what does it mean that he is our Redeemer? What does it mean to be redeemed exactly? And more specifically, what does it mean that you have been redeemed? Well, there's two concepts in the Old Testament, related concepts, in the Old Testament culture, That inform our understanding of redemption and both of them have to do with the idea of ownership the first idea the first concept is that to redeem something is to buy something back or to restore something in Old Testament Israel for example if somebody was in financial trouble they might be forced to sell something and usually it would be land or property that they were forced to sell land that had been in their family's possession for many years. And God's law made the provision that at certain specified times, the nearest relative could redeem the land. That is, they could pay the necessary price to buy back the land and restore it to the family to whom it had historically belonged. And that nearest relative was called the Redeemer, or the kinsman, Redeemer. You might remember the Old Testament story of Ruth, how Elimelech and Naomi left Bethlehem in a time of famine and went and lived in Moab. And there, eventually, Elimelech and their two sons died. And Naomi then makes a decision to return home to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. But there they find themselves in poverty and they only survive because of the generosity of a man, a wealthy landowner named Boaz. Well, it turns out that Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband and he ends up marrying Ruth and buying all the land that had formerly belonged to Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And thus it's restored to the family. Boaz is Naomi and Ruth's redeemer, who restores to them the ownership of the land that they had either lost or given up many years before. And the idea is that the land that he buys back will belong to the son that he has by Ruth. And the son will be Naomi's grandson. And so the family line and ownership of the land is continued. Boaz was the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. And I think that's why the book of Ruth is in the Bible, to play out what a redeemer does. So to buy back or to restore... The second idea of redemption is that of rescue or of ransom, specifically from slavery or from death. And again, there would be a price that would be paid for, essentially paid for the life of a person. And there are some interesting law, or I find them interesting, in Leviticus 25 and 27 that outline the price and the process for redeeming certain things uh, animals and people. For example, if somebody was uh, dedicated to the Lord or was stipulated to belong to the Lord, either by God's divine right or by a vow that somebody had made, somebody belonged to the Lord, that person could be redeemed at the, by the sacrifice of an animal. And that signified that even though your life belonged to God... Sorry, if your life belonged to God... Your life would be, in a sense, given back to you, restored to you by the death of a substitutionary sacrifice, by the giving of another life in your place. You gave this life to God, and you were allowed to live, and you would have your life essentially given back to you. If an animal belonged to God, you could pay a price and redeem the animal, and pay the price for the life of the animal, and the animal would then live. So that's kind of two Old Testament ideas. In the Greek New Testament era, both in classical Greek and in the common Greek that the New Testament was written in, you have the very same concepts. Uh, to buy back something that you had pawned, for example, was to redeem it and get it back. And to ransom uh, a prisoner of war or to ransom a slave was to redeem that slave or that prisoner. So you would pay the redemption price, the ransom price. And the prisoner of war or the slave was no longer owned by their captor or master, but was set free. And the price that was paid was called the redemption price. So the fact that God in the New Testament uses redemption language when he talks about what God has done for us in Christ is very significant. It's not an accidental choice. And there's three facets to the idea, to the doctrine of redemption that we need to understand. First, the state from which we have been redeemed. Secondly, the cost, the price of redemption. And third, our new reality as a redeemed people. So first, the state from which we have been redeemed. The language of redemption implies something about our sinful condition. And what it implies is that humans are enslaved to sin. Genesis 6 verse 5 says that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And this phrase that all the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And we think surely that can't be. Nobody is as evil as they can be all the time. Not everybody goes home and kicks their dog after a bad day at work. There surely are grades of evil and of sin. But when God looked at humanity, he saw that all of the thoughts of our heart were only evil all the time. What does that mean? Uh, I, I, I tried to explain this in the sermon some months back, and I will try to do it again. I think we have a hard time believing that humanity is what the theologians used to call um, wholly depraved, because we see certain sins as better or worse, of lesser or more serious degree than others. I cheat on my taxes while he murders 15 people, so surely we're not the same. But the Bible makes the comment that everything that does not arise from faith is sin. And I think that what it means is that there is really only one sin. And all other things that we call sins are just outworkings of the one great sin. And the one great sin is this. It's to live outside of the lordship of God. And everything that I do outside of the lordship of God is sin. It might benefit people, it might be helpful to someone, it might look good on the outside, and it might not have consequences that come to bear on my life immediately that are painful, but everything that I do, if I'm outside the lordship of God, is sin. If I have not surrendered to the lordship of God, every thought of my heart will be only evil all the time. Outside the lordship of God, we are enslaved to sin. In fact, the very first sin was the sin of stepping out from the lordship of God. When God said to Adam and Eve, this. And Adam and Eve said, nope, this. And every sin is an outworking of that, an outworking of that stepping from the lordship of God. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And then he says, desperately sick, Who can understand it? We can't even understand our own hearts if we are separated from God. We are not master of our hearts. We can't even understand what goes on in our hearts. Sin is our master, and the heart is deceitful above all things. David said this after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, he said, You know what? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I've been sinful from day one. I've had a sinful bent in my spirit from the time of my conception. Sin is our default position. We can't not sin because we're enslaved to it. And anyone with kids knows that the assumption of our culture that kids are born innocent and that humans are basically good but have been conditioned to sin is a wrong assumption. I love my kids. But I see that they are intrinsically selfish, willful, and even violent. They're naturally defiant. They need to be taught that hitting is not an appropriate way to respond if something happens that they don't like. They don't, they don't know that. It's natural to hit and to lash out. They need to be taught that generosity is a virtue. They need to be taught That other people need to be considered. They need to be taught that honoring the leadership of their parents is is required. And the language of redemption means that sin is not merely dysfunction or poor choices. That selfishness and dishonesty and lust and gossip are not just mistakes that we make. People are slaves to sin. We were quite literally owned by sin sin had us absolutely in its power consider for example the power of sexual temptation for men especially i enjoy reading history and i'm often struck in reading history by the consistent pattern of men when given absolute power will use that power to indulge their slavery to sexual appetites roman emperors and 20th century dictators the same priests in the Middle Ages, and televangelists today, those in religious authority, cults, gang members. When men find that they can act with impunity, their slavery to sexual sin asserts itself with incredible consistency over centuries of human history. And that's just one example. But we are slaves to sin. Which means that the solution to sin is not, for example, education, It's not legislation, which is essentially a grand-scale project in behavior modification and control. The solution isn't government. If the problem of human sin is the reality of the human heart and mind enslaved, the solution can't arise from the human heart and mind. Try harder. Have better information. Put better systems in place. Try to act differently. Chris Rice sings these words. Am I the only one to notice human nature doesn't work that way? They tell me if I look inside me, I can find my own way. But I only find a rebel and a fool there who doesn't know that he's afraid, thought that I was holding on to freedom, but bound my soul up in chains. So for the Bible to use a biblical language of redemption reveals that our condition in sin is one of slavery. We have a master and it's not us. That's our condition needing redemption. Okay? So what is the price of redemption? We need to be set free. We need, we need a transaction made in our behalf. This is what we read this morning. First Peter chapter 118, knowing that you were ransomed, which is the same word by the way as redeemed. In fact, the NIV, I think, says redeemed. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, not ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was, made known, or he was revealed before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for your sake who through him are believers in God. The price of redemption is not silver or gold. You couldn't give enough. You couldn't, Bill Gates could not give up his fortune and redeem you. But we've been redeemed with something imperishable, something of infinite value, the blood of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And in the picture of the Old Testament, the, the death of the animal, the death of the substitutionary sacrifice by which you yourself then get your life back and go free. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The redemption price that Christ paid was himself. Mark chapter 10, in Jesus' call to his disciples to humility, said, Even the Son of Man... Now think, disciples, even me. You're getting a sense that I am more than a prophet of God. You're seeing divine authority in the hand of God on me. I am the divine figure that the Old Testament promised and called the Son of Man. Even the Son of Man didn't come to to be served. If anyone could have, it was him. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to pay the price for the redemption of many Jesus bought us with his own blood 1st Corinthians chapter 6 you are not your own you were bought with a price and that price was the death of Jesus see we were slaves to sin and if we were to be set free our freedom had to come as a gift from the outside And that gift is Jesus. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we sing. Amazing love that you, my King, would die for me. I'm forgiven, freed from sin because you're forsaken. I'm accepted by God because you were condemned. I am redeemed because you gave your life in my place. What an astonishing thing. And we we say and sing redeemed so easily. But it means such a profound and rich reality for us. Redemption, our enslavement to sin, our need to be redeemed, the price paid the death of Christ for us. Third, what now? Our condition as redeemed people. Galatians 3 verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What does that mean? What is the curse of the law? If you break the law, there is a curse that comes to you. Isn't there? You gotta pay a fine, you gotta go to jail, you might be executed, But there is a punishment, there is a curse, there are bad things that come to you if you break the law. The curse of the law, of God's law, our failure to live under his lordship, our insistence on stepping out from under his lordship and having the thoughts of our heart be only evil all the time, the punishment, the curse that comes with that is separation from God eternally. It's judgment It is the very condemnation of God himself. It is hell. The just and holy retribution. And maybe this is worth saying for a moment as well. In case you think, ah, hell, that's way overstating. I think that hell is nothing more than God saying, you know what? You've wanted nothing to do with me all this time. Okay. For eternity then? have nothing to do with me. And the Bible uses language like gnashing of teeth and darkness and fire. But those are just images and they don't even the image of eternal torment by fire doesn't it doesn't convey half of the reality of the torment of what it means to be apart from God forever. Hell is the natural consequence. Hell is God giving us what we want when we say, I don't want you. The curse of the law. That's what comes to us. Hell, condemnation, judgment. But Christ has redeemed us from that. He set us free from that. We have been under the wrath of God by nature, children of wrath. Standing in the place of God's judgment. And Jesus says, you know what? Let me free you from that. The curse is going to fall down over here. The blessing and acceptance of God is going to fall down over here. Come stand here with me. And that's what he does. We've been set free from the curse of the law. What does that mean to us? Well, so it means joy. <laughs> it means grace. Grace. Do we understand what it means to be redeemed from the curse of the law? Do we understand what it means that there is a future for us with God in his presence with no more sin or death or crying or mourning but intimacy with him, intimacy with each other, freedom, wholeness, forgiveness. Romans chapter 6 says, verse 18, that having been set free from sin... You have become slaves to righteousness. That's what it means to be a redeemed people. And we are slaves to—let me say—we are slaves to righteousness in the very same way that we are slaves to sin, that we were slaves to sin. And this is a, a very important clarification for us. Many of us think that that we are to be slaves to righteousness in a different way than we were slaves to sin. That when we were slaves to sin, what that meant was we couldn't help but sin. It enslaved us. We had no choice. We could only sin. That's all we had the power to do. But to be slaves to righteousness means that we can help it and need to try harder to lay down the rules laid by righteousness, our master. But I think the Bible is saying something different from that. I think that to be slaves to righteousness means that just as we couldn't not sin in our unredeemed condition, that to be slaves to righteousness means that we can't help but live righteously in our redeemed condition that out of a new and freed heart and a life that is being transformed, being conformed to the likeness of Christ and his character, naturally arises love and joy and self-giving and forgiveness and virtue and compassion and purity and service and worship. That we don't sort of say, okay, this is what it looks like. I I better try hard to be righteous. No, we've been changed, freed, renewed, given a new heart, a new character, the Spirit of God, and these things become natural in us. That's what I think it means to be enslaved to righteousness. It's freedom in righteousness, not just a new burden. Not just... Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Corinthians chapter 6 again. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. We belong to God. We are his. And this colors everything. It doesn't mean great, not free, just a new master. No, to belong to God is to find real freedom. To belong to God is to come home. It's to look around and say, yes, this is where my heart has belonged all this time, only I didn't know it until now. It means that to live under the lordship of God is to live fully. It means that decisions around career and family and church and money and leisure time, the decisions made under God's lordship in those areas are made well. And when we make them with Him in mind, there's freedom, there's joy, there's peace, there's not the, ha, ah, am I doing it right? Fear. That's what it means to be owned by God, to belong to him, to be a slave of righteousness. Today's Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. When when Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb, do you remember that story? Lazarus, come out. They said, oh, he's been there four days. Lazarus comes out, and Jesus says, take his grave clothes off. Let him walk free. You don't come out of the tomb still wrapped in your grave clothes. And sometimes at Halloween, I think we put our grave clothes back on. I mean, I, I love having my kid dress up as a dinosaur and knock on the neighbor's door and get a Mars bar. I think that's fun, right? Celebrate that. It's wonderful. But a lot of the trappings of Halloween, I wonder, do we need to celebrate death and fear and evil, the stuff that we've been freed from? Why would we put our grave clothes back on and celebrate these things? We know that Christ gave himself so that we'd be free from the fear of death, free from the powers of darkness, free from being slaves to evil. So anyway, my commercial for Halloween. Let's celebrate what's worth celebrating. Let's, Let's walk as free and redeemed people. The blood of Christ. The scripture says, Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord... You remember the next words? We sing it sometimes. Shall do what? Shall rejoice and go forth with singing. We who are in Christ are the redeemed of the Lord. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to our master who loves us. Slaves to righteousness. Free from the curse of the law, free from the fear of death, free from the judgment of God, free to approach him with confidence in Christ. This is what it means to be a redeemed people. And this is when we sing of Christ, our Redeemer, all of this stuff undergirds our worship to him. And it doesn't just undergird our song, it undergirds our life. Of worship to him. Redeemed people are just different than unredeemed people. They live differently. They act differently. They live out a whole different set of values. Again, joy, freedom, peace. What a wonderful thing. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, we love you. Thank you. Amazing love that you, my King, would die for me that I might go free. Let us pray.